good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Collin. The goal of Power for the People is to help Mainers understand the, frankly, increasingly complex energy future, uh, especially in this time of rising prices. Uh, and hopefully this understanding will help you uh, uh, be able to make smarter choices and to help you uh, reduce your energy costs. That's our goal, and we've been doing it for a long time. And uh, in my case, I've taken my own advice, shall we say. I, uh, I walk the walk, and uh, my energy prices have actually decreased by about 60% in my own home. And uh, interestingly, this winter in particular, when people have been complaining about high energy costs, uh, I use heat pumps, and my my uh, my heating cost this winter went up by about two hundred dollars. Uh, and so these sorts of things are indeed possible. Uh, my guest today is Andrew Landry, who uh, is an attorney and deputy public advocate in the office of uh, the the main public advocate uh, with the office located in Hollowell. That is a state agency, uh, maybe not uh, as well known as some state agencies, and that's part of the reason that that I have Andrew on on the, uh, the line with me today so that we can talk about a number of issues uh, that I hope we'll, we'll be able to clarify some people's uh, understanding of the pricing that happened this winter just as, as an obvious place to start. So Andrew, again, uh, your title is Deputy Public Advocate in the Office of the Main Public Advocate. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you uh, came to be in that position. Um, well, I uh, thank you, Steve, and uh, uh, thanks for having us on. Um, I'm uh, I've been working for the Office of the Public Advocate now for three years. Uh, prior to that, I was in private practice for about 15 years in uh, um, in a private firm in Maine, specializing in energy work, uh, both uh, uh, representing clients at the Public Utilities Commission and other forums, and uh, also helping do some project development um, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I started my career many, many years ago. Now I was an in-house lawyer at Bangor Hydroelectric Company when it was still Bangor Hydroelectric Company. So I uh, spent my whole career doing this. Yeah, the different good parts. old days of Bangor Hydro. So yeah. I lived in Old Town for many years and uh, have, have solar uh, energy on a place I have at a lake uh, in uh, former Bangor Hydro territory. So uh, I've worked with them and, and used them for many years myself. So, so tell us, tell us a little bit more about what the Office of the Public Advocate does uh, specifically. I mean, it's mostly uh, or maybe entirely utilities um, focused, but tell us a little bit more about the office and how many people there are, that sort of thing. So the, the Office of the Public Advocate is an agency uh, of the state of Maine, as you noted. Uh, our responsibility is to serve primarily as an advocate for utility customers, as a group, we don't represent folks individually, but as a group in forums where their interests as utility uh, customers are affected. So that can mean, um, uh, uh, frequently means the Public Utilities Commission, um, but it also can mean uh, the federal federal agencies. Um, the, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, on the, I'm a representative on the, uh, NEPOOL Participants Committee, which is the advisory board to ISO New England uh, based on stakeholders. So we represent them in the customer sector. And, uh, you know, we testify on legislation and 
uh, presently just legislation again uh, with a focus on customer issues. We also have a public outreach function. Um, we have a full-time consumer advisor who uh, you know, we maintain a website with a lot of information that could be helpful to customers on issues like uh, competitive electricity market, uh, community solar, these types of issues. Um, we do field phone calls from customers who have questions about uh, those issues or any other issues that affect them, uh, you know, complaints about uh, utilities, that sort of thing. Um, and we, we, you know, we're, we're uh, I think over the next year, we're probably increasing our efforts to do more, uh, more community outreach to get uh, people information about what they can do to manage their energy costs. Right. And I was uh, browsing your website uh, and you do have a, a good information page there, for example, about community solar, mm -hmm. uh, which was the, the topic of the program uh, last month here. Uh, and I think that's something that is, um, shall we say, uh, confusing or, or people have uncertainty about. And there are some potential issues going on there. So, so that kind of information is certainly extremely valuable. I do want to pick up on something. Uh, so you you said that you uh, you represent broadly represent policy in the in the industry and work with the PUC, but you don't handle individual complaints. So if, if an individual has a complaint, such as CMP billing issues, which we may come to later in this program, they would go to the PUC, not to you guys. Is that correct? Um, uh, it depends on the nature of the issue. I mean, we we do. I mean, if an individual customer calls us. We will offer them advice about if we're not the right agency, we'll recommend what which agency. There is a, a, a division of the Public Utilities Commission called the Consumer Assistance and Safety Division. They are responsible for very specific complaints about utility service. So if you had a problem on your bill or something like that, they and, and you thought the utility did something wrong, they have jurisdiction to do something about it. Uh, they can order the utility to fix it if they find that there's cause for it, for instance. Um, but we, we uh, can advise customers about how to proceed, whether it's uh, participating in a case, uh, whether it's um, whether uh, we have, we answer a lot of questions about community solar and about, uh, about competitive service right now, but we answered a lot of questions back when there was a billing, big billing problem at CMP. We took a lot of calls about that. People, you know, wanted to know what their options were, uh, and you know, we advise them as best we can. But we don't then represent you at the Public Utilities Commission as an individual. We give you advice, but we don't represent you. Right. So somebody would normally, uh, uh, a consumer would could uh, engage with you guys, but would ultimately wind up with the PUC. Um, if, if depending on the nature of the complaint, if they had a specific, you know, service issue or billing issue. Um, the, the CA Consumer Assistance Division has authority to uh, uh, require the utility to take action to correct it. We don't. We, I mean, we we have we are advocates. We are not uh, and advisors. We are not. Uh, we're not a decisional body. We're not a policy making body. Right. So there's there's legal proceedings going on with Central Maine Power right now. Um, relative to management or profits or something, I'm not sure yeah. what it is. <clears throat> Who started that that legal proceeding? Um, well, this is still a continuation of uh, at the, what started as the billing issues back in a rate case, uh, going back a few years. 
one of the outcomes of their last rate case was the commission ordered that an audit be conducted of CMP's management. Um, a consulting firm called Liberty Consulting performed the order, audit. Um, they issued an extensive report, which made some um, a very interesting findings. You know, we see as customers, we see um, problems that are reflected in billing errors or uh, decisions about investment or responding to storms that cause us concern. Uh, the audit really, it, it kind of did some root cause work to try to figure out what about um, CMP's management structure was leading to the kinds of failures um, we've seen in certain instances with respect to, for instance, the billing uh, system problem, which is the obvious one. Um, and so the commission is now at the next step as open an investigation. Um, they've issued an order requiring CMP to present testimony addressing a number of issues. Um, and um, and so that'll be the, the first thing that happens in the case. So that'll be, uh, I don't know, a month or six weeks from now that they'll file testimony and there'll be a litigated proceeding about whether uh, CMP has taken sufficient actions to resolve the issues that were identified in the management report. There is legislation pending out there. <clears throat> I think it's still just pending, <clears throat> excuse me, relative to um, where the, um, the electricity market goes. And even the, the, the legislation draft that I've seen makes reference to the possibility of a buyout of CMP um does do you guys have any uh any role in that kind of legislation or is it only advisory well, only advisory uh, um and we haven't really uh taken an active role on that issue um so uh you know i, I think uh i'll observe that folks who think that going to public power system would be a panacea and result in immediately lower rates um, I'm not convinced of that. I, I think um, you're going to pay a lot of money to buy CMP, and there's no assur assurance that a new manager is going to be better than an old manager. Um, might be better senior management or better, but on the other hand, uh, the real advantages to it would be uh, financing large capital projects, and the, the value from that will be many years in the future. Um, so. Uh, and in any event, we're we're it's not a, uh, an issue that's a particularly uh, top of mind issue for us right now. There are a number of very serious issues facing uh, utility customers in Maine that are more pressing, and frankly, that um, you know, public power is neither a solution nor a cause of any, any of those. So. Right, and uh, I, I didn't want to go there in any depth <clears throat> because there are uh, yeah. serious issues out there. <clears throat> so one more thing before we talk about uh, electrical rates, for example, what is the relationship between the PUC, the Governor's Energy Office, and the Office of Public uh, Advocate? <clears throat> well, okay, I've, I've described what we do. We are an advocacy agency. We represent customers as a group and provide advice to customers. The Public Utilities Commission is a quasi-adjudicatory body 
which means they act like a court and they decide uh, cases that are brought before them by utilities, or they can be initiated by customers, or they can be initiated. Uh, we could we could request the commission open investigation, or the commission on its own initiative can open an investigation into something. But then they would be the judge in the case. The governor's energy office is a uh, a policy office. They work obviously for the governor, but with the legislature to uh, develop uh, policies to uh, and and then strategies and tactics to achieve whatever our energy policy goals are. So, um, if we want to reduce, uh, we want to. Reduce uh, um, carbon footprint related to transportation or to home heating or other things. They would develop policies, present legislation to um, attempt to uh, achieve those policy goals. Um, and we we sometimes we sometimes would present legislation, but it's usually more directed at at specific consumer issues, consumer protection issues, that sort of thing. And who does the Office uh, of Public Advocate report to? The public Advocate is appointed by the governor, but it is a fixed term position. So uh, unlike other commissioner level positions, if a new governor comes in, the public advocate stays on until their term is up. The governor does appoint the public advocate, but um, really um, it's... And it's, we're part of the executive branch, but there's uh, we're not directly subject to uh, the you know direction from the governor's office. We we act independently, um, but obviously we coordinate closely. So, and you used the word commissioner there a second ago. Is the public advocate a member of the governor's cabinet? No, no. But it is. But the position is at the same level in terms of. Uh, it's the it's the head of an agency. Okay, all right. That's uh, that's very helpful, and that uh, that helps with understanding certainly. So let's go to to uh, electricity pricing. Yes, uh, it's on everybody's <laughs> top of mind lately. Um, and just for for clarity for everybody listening, where uh, what what how are those prices set? So we we uh, are part of a regional power market. Maine is a uh, uh, Maine is uh, energy wholesale energy market is managed by an outfit called ISO New England. It's the independent system operator for New England, who has a real time and day ahead and uh, markets for energy. Um, those prices are set, and this this is a real this will really get wonky and. Hopefully, some of your people might get it, but uh, it, the economists who are listening and will get it. It's a, it's a clearing price market, which means in any given hour of the day, every unit that operates, every electric generator that operates gets paid the same price. And that price is the highest price that successfully bids into the market to meet that instantaneous demand that has to be met in the electric market. So if the most expensive unit that clears in the market is natural gas and natural gas is really expensive, then, you know, uh, hydro units, nuclear units, uh, 
wood-fired units, solar units, uh, grid-scale solar units will all get paid the same the price of whatever it costs, whatever that gas unit bid into the market in that hour. And <laughs> so, so tell me why it makes sense that the that the highest price uh, item out there controls the uh, the market for everybody else. Um, I, I think ba- economic theory says that's how you do it. Like when you go and uh, buy a car, even uh, if you had if 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 Chevy and Ford and and Toyota and Honda were all making equivalent cars in terms of features and um, other things uh, and size, and you know they, they basically made fun cars that are effectively very identical, almost identical. The one that the one that would um, set the market price is the most expensive one that people are willing to buy. So, um, and other other competitors who are able to produce the same vehicle for less are would have extra profit because they were able to do it for less. But people are willing to pay, let's say, twenty five thousand dollars for a mid sized car. Um, that's established by what people walking into dealers are willing to pay, then no one's going to produce a car that costs more than that to make. So that's, that'll be the price. And it, 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 I think supply and demand curve crosses where it doesn't cross at the lowest price. They crosses at the, the, the highest price that a customer is willing to pay to buy something. That's the theory. Um, and now, you know, when we had vertically integrated utilities and, Let's say bank, my, my old uh, company, Bangor Hydro, owned a bunch of hydro units, and those things were 75 years old and were paid off and were generating electricity for zero cents. Then that zero cents got blended in to the cost of the electricity. Today, that same hydro unit is now owned by a, a competitive company, is able to bid in and they'll get whatever the current hourly price is in any hour. Um, it's uh, it's a different system. The theory is that competition will drive the price down, um, and that's the way a market works. Um, electricity is unique because it's an hourly market. Um, I mean, it's not an hourly market; it's an instantaneous market. Demand and supply has to be met in real time. Um, right, and that demand and supply thing is part of the equation here. That. It upsets the economics, perhaps. I mean, back to the car analogy, it seems to me that if some company comes out with a and makes the same vehicle for less money than the higher price car, that drives prices down, not drives prices up. Well, it will. And that's the theory is that that's what will happen. That um, the, you know, as you say, uh, that lower price car comes in, if they sell it for a lower price, the higher priced vehicle has either they've either got to go out of business or they have to figure out a way to lower their costs to match their competition. And the theory is this market, you know, um, it's the highest price unit that runs. So there are higher price units that are bidding that don't get to run. Um, and, and, and in theory, again, it's economic theory. Um, that's driving competition at the wholesale level to find the lowest uh, the lowest mix of resource cost mix of resources to run at any given time. 
Um, and, and basically, the guys from New England is making that decision in terms of who comes online and who's generating power at any given time. They do, but it's a very fixed set of rules based on you know prices bid into the market. Right. They don't decide. I mean, they don't. They don't sit around and say, "We want to buy this one or that one." They have a very, very set group of rules that says who gets to run when. Right. So uh, my guest uh, from two programs ago, who I guess is better uh, to uh, be unnamed at this point, said that part of the issue with our pricing and our grid uh, situation is that <clears throat> ISO New England is working on on contracts that were written many years ago and rules that were met, written many years ago. Uh, and I'm sure you've, you've run into people saying this too, that ISO New England, we need to reform uh, relative to uh, how the grid operates uh, and how prices are set. With that statement, um, I mean, and you can come back and, and uh, push back on that one in a minute if you want to, but it, it seems to me that because the cost, so so our electrical costs have gone up significantly. Uh, the cost for high, for any given hydro plant have not changed. The cost for any particular solar or wind farm have not changed. So are they making windfall profits right now because of the high price that's I believe being uh, set by natural gas? Um, I mean that that is probably true for some generators. There are other generators who still can't operate or have problems and. I think one of the problems uh, that I have, and I know every, everybody loves markets, um, but um, these markets are not, you know, the, I think the car analogy, it's very easy to see there's, you know, there's a group of car dealers out there and they're competing against each other, trying to better each other, trying to attract the customer with a feature or a lower price or what have you. With these markets, um, the, we design these markets, you know, the, the markets, there's no natural market for electricity. Mark electricity um, is very, it, it's a very complicated product because it has to be produced and is consumed instantaneously. Um, and to have competitors, uh, you know, competing with each other, all, all the market rules that govern um, the wholesale market or even the retail market are established by, uh, by people. And the question is, is do people have the perfect foresight to be able to create a market that uh, uh, achieves the public policy goals that you want to achieve? It's, it's a real challenge. And, I, you know, ISO New England is constantly tweaking its wholesale market rules. But the issue we're seeing this year is, is really the fact that uh, New England uh, lacks an adequate source of natural gas and something like half the electricity that's consumed in New England comes from natural gas-fired plants. And during uh, periods of cold weather or uh, tight supply for other reasons, um, we rely on liquefied natural gas as a marginal fuel, and that has to come from somewhere. And usually it comes from, you know, uh, Trinidad and Tobago or Nigeria. Sometimes it, it came from Russia. One place it doesn't come from is the United States because there's no, uh, there's a lot of uh, LNG being exported from uh, the United States, but because of a, a, a hundred year old law called the Jones Act, 
they can't deliver natural gas to U.S. ports by ship because there are no ships that are U.S. flagged capable of doing it. Anyway, that's a, that's a small contributor to the factor, but the problem is that uh, Europe and Japan are very dependent on LNG, particularly with the issues going on with Russia and Ukraine. Um, they are not able to import uh, as much gas themselves like New England, and we're competing in a world market for LNG uh, to serve that marginal generation during peak hours in the winter. Right. And I guess I didn't realize it was LNG firing uh, electricity generating plants. I assumed that it's coming in from Sable Island and other places that most of the time that's where the gas comes from. It comes from most of it comes from Pennsylvania or Canada. Um, but during those peak hours that that gas pipeline gas is all committed to serving heating load in uh, New England. So uh, the generators do not have a pipeline reservation. So they're last in line when it comes to gas. Now it works very well, uh, you know, 80 to 90% of the time there are, um, there's more than adequate uh, unused pipeline capacity for the generators to get gas. It's that, you know, that, that short period of time when there's significant heating demand and the heating demand has contracted for that pipeline capacity. Therefore, we have to turn to other sources and you're either buying the most expensive gas coming off the pipeline, if there's any, you know, they're fighting for that last bit of gas or available capacity or they're buying LNG. In either event, it drives the price up and that's what sets the electricity price. Now, talk about retail competition for a second, that's different. Um, that's obviously not governed by ISO New England, but all the standard offer provider and all of the competitive energy suppliers, really, they all purchase their electricity in that wholesale market that I just described. And they want to make a commitment for a year or sometimes with competitive suppliers that might offer a six month or an eight month price to you. When As soon as they sign up, they contract with a, uh, make a financial instrument to guarantee the price that they're going to buy the power at so they can ensure that they lock in a profit. This is, this is the, the business model they employ, and they're all essentially doing it in a very similar way. But the result is that, for instance, right now, there's a projection that uh, gas prices will be high again next winter. So if you wanted to sign a 12-month contract, with a, uh, a competitive supplier right now, um, they think the prices are gonna be high next winter also. So there's, there's no price relief there. There is some price relief. There are a couple of competitors out there who are offering six or eight month contracts and they don't have that uh, expensive winter gas baked into their price. So they're able to offer a slightly lower price. Um, we're seeing there's a couple of competitors out there who are offering uh, two cent per kilowatt hour discounts on on competitive energy supply, but they're for six or eight month periods rather than the 12 month. I was going to ask about that because there used to be television ads for competitive energy suppliers, and I haven't seen one in a long time. 
uh, and but they're they're out there, but they're in essence equally high priced is what you're saying. Well, the, yeah, the problem is that this they're not vertically integrated companies, or to the extent they are vertically integrated, they are not like using they are not selling you the power from the plant that their affiliate owns. They are they uh, they are buying mark they are buying power. Excuse me. Uh, on the wholesale market on an hourly basis, and they are using financial hedge instruments to lock in their price ahead of time so they can guarantee the price that they promised you. And the result is uh, they uh, they tend to, the prices, it's the same strategy the standard offer provider uses, so the prices don't differ a lot. Right. So let's be clear here that the uh, the electrical rate that we are all paying is made up of delivery, which is um, central main power or, or you know, regional uh, utility, uh, which the PUC approved a, a modest increase uh, last summer, correct? Yes. And then there's the supply side, and it's the supply side that has gone up, you know, significant price, which is actually what we're talking about here with natural gas uh, or LNG driving that price. And the two together are what uh, result in, you know, what you hear is an 80% increase in electrical rates, something like that. Um, and, but most of it is in the supply side. Just to well, make- The really big increase that we saw in January was the supply side. That's correct. Right. And the PUC um, has approved that through for, for all of 2022. But based on what you said a moment ago, the expectation is that that high price is going to remain in place because of natural gas in 2023. Uh, at, at this point in time, based on the prices that we're seeing and the futures that we're seeing, um, that will, you know, the, the price would be expected to stay in a similar range. But they will not be going out to select a vendor for next year until October, November. And if there are changes in the world market between now and then, which is possible, um, we, could, we could see a lower price. We're, and we all have our fingers crossed, believe me. Right, right. Anything can happen. Thanks to Mr. Putin. All right. So um, <clears throat> relative to content, uh, competitive uh, offers from uh, relative to the standard offer, uh, and, and this relates to my comment from a few minutes ago that the renewable energy uh, existing providers are making, I use the term windfall profits relative to uh, their costs compared to the, the rate that they're getting. Why wouldn't some entity, uh, a computer, a, a community solar entity, be a, a CEP and offer rates that were based on their expected costs way back when they established these things in 2020? I don't know. Um, I think that's an available business model that somebody could pursue. What we've seen from the community solar providers, though, is their standard pricing model is to simply offer a fixed discount off of your otherwise utility bill, which results in when there's an increase in the price to um, the utility or from the utility or from the competitive market, they get the same price increase. That's... uh, I'm not sure. Uh, well, I, I'm, I w- I've not been involved in that industry, and certainly not involved in how they set their pricing strategies. Um, but I, that is the pricing strategy that the industry seems to have adopted. But you're right; uh, 
Um, it's certainly uh, when they've set their price in that way, uh, it does have the tendency to result in them obtaining uh, a higher level of profit than they probably anticipated when they built the project. Right. I mean, they they built projects based on 2020 or 2021 pricing, and we're going to make money then. Uh, and so it comes back again to uh, to my term, you know, windfall profits. There was something called a windfall profits tax, I guess, way back in the 70s. Um, and, and, and I don't know the details on it. Uh, I think it was a national one, actually. I mean, is there any is there any uh, possibility that the state of Maine could look at a windfall profit situation and do some regulation of these these prices? I, I, I really don't have an opinion on that. Um, uh, but it, it does give me some concern about the, the community solar model that the, the business model that's been adopted, um, not providing the benefits that I think people might hope. And I, I, I do think that there is opportunity um, to use renewable power to, to do that. I know uh, the Fox Island project out on Vinyl Haven um, they supply their standard offer primarily from the wind project they built out there. And uh, I don't think the standard offer is any lower than the one that we're experiencing. On the other hand, when that wind project is paid off, it will be uh, very low price electricity. And the benefit of that will go to the customers of uh, Fox Island Electric Cooperative. So that. So in effect, they would, when, I mean, they're dealing with the paying with paying the instrumentation off, but you're saying that they could be independently priced uh, at some point in the future based on their actual costs. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting statement, which leads me to to point out that uh, I mean, as you said, the state of the uh, New England gets about fifty percent of its electricity from natural gas, but Maine's grid is eighty percent renewable, and, mm-hmm. and it just seems like it's unfair that we're paying the high prices we are when when we have all these renewables that were already in place and making, you know, we're based on the profit model from previous pricing. Well, um, we can go back and second guess uh, how we decided to do restructuring because we, we chose a, a model that other states didn't or some other states didn't. But regardless of that, um, we the 80%, I think, is a misnomer. I think 80% of the capacity might be renewable, but... Um, less than 50% of the energy that's purchased in Maine is renewable and, um, and I'm just going to look right now at the ISO website, see how much renewable energy is actually running on the grid right this moment. <laughs> it's, uh, says we've got 11% renewable and 8% hydro that count them separately. So 80% of the power, uh, that's running on the ISO grid right now is not renewable. Did you say 80%? 80% is not. So so the, the, uh, the, the federal uh, IEA, EIA says that our grid is 80% renewable. How do we, uh, how do we get those two numbers to make sense? First of all, yeah, this is something I like to remind people of this. There's two functions, how much electricity is being produced in Maine is renewable and how much electricity being purchased in Maine is renewable. Those are two very different numbers. The amount that's being purchased is set by the renewable portfolio standard requirement in Maine. 
much of the renewable energy that is being generated in Maine is being sold under contract to utilities in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and elsewhere. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense. I mean, not that the electrons actually go there, but it's those, exactly <laughs> they don't. The, the electricity, yeah. Uh, the the electrons. No, I mean, electrons. It's not DC power. They don't go from. They don't flow like water. It's, right. it's a giant energized system, and the the plants that are in Maine are keeping the system energized in Maine. That is true. Right. And is this related to? I mean, simplicity to selling wrecks and things like that. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to use the acronym there. Rec is a renewable energy credit. Uh, which you can uh, purchase. I mean, I worked for an, an institution a few years ago that purchased uh, renewable energy credits from wind power in Wyoming to make uh, themselves more uh, climate friendly. But uh, certainly there's not a single electron in Wyoming that winds up in Maine. No, I mean, the, the idea is you're offsetting your consumption of carbon by buying the renewable attribute of another plant somewhere else. Um, in Maine, uh, I think it's the Maine... The Green Power Program, I think the Public Utilities Commission administers. Um, you can purchase RECs, which are all main qualified RECs, um, to meet your full demand with renewable power if you want. Uh, I actually participate in that program. I, I buy a block to cover my consumption. Okay. I, uh, I also don't want to, uh, I mean, we've, we've uh, dissed community solar here a little bit. Uh, and I do want to say that community solar offers the opportunity for even an apartment dweller or somebody who has a shaded roof to, to go solar. And so to me, that is a valuable uh, social climate oriented opportunity. I think that the, and I think if you read the fine print, you'll, you'll understand their business model a different. You are, you own a solar project when you participate in community solar you are not necessarily buying the power from that project. Um, uh, in fact, I think most of the developers are selling the renewable credits that are created by those projects uh, to other cut to customers in their competitive market. And that's a whole other issue. So um, they, I think you're, you're supporting solar by, participating in community solar you're not necessarily buying solar when <laughs> that, that, that's correct right and, and that comes back to that uh, to me uh, unexpectedly because the price has gone up uh, the community solar business model ought to be that they are a competitive energy provider uh, rather than just giving you a discount I mean it's nice to get the the 10 or 15 percent discount and that helps in the high price world, but it's still, uh, uh, there, there are other ways that they could be more responsive to, to customers' needs. I will simply observe that um, the community solar uh, um, system in Maine was established by the legislature. I mean, they didn't require them to do the 10% discount or 15% discount model. That was That's their choice. But in terms of the way it works, it was very much uh, a response to the way the program was established by the legislature, um, where the governor's energy office has been heading up a task force to, which includes stakeholders, including us, the, the community's solar industry, 
uh, other other interesting parties to retool community solar for around two, which will better align the program with uh, addressing our climate goals, addressing um, the benefits of distributed resources. Um, I mean, one, one sales pitch for community solar or re distributed resources generally is that will help support the local distribution system and therefore reduce costs in the long run. Um, but there was this was no effort made to ensure that distributed these projects were located in a place where they would actually support the system. So we don't know whether they are or they're not. It's probably not hurting them, but um, you know, the the that's one of the purposes. We want to make sure that when projects are cited in the future, that they'll be cited in places where they provide system benefits for the electric grid, which is uh, will be important, particularly as we do more heat pumps and uh, uh, electric vehicles and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think you know, that's a point very well taken. It's it's really been a free for all out there, is the way I would describe it. I mean, and and just for for everybody's background listening, uh, the uh, the rules set by the PUC a number of years ago were that a community solar system, and there's a couple of different models for community solar that we don't need to go into, had a limit of ten meters. Uh, and the legislature increased that to a thousand, which opened the door to community solar, but again, without a lot of guidance in terms of the system benefit, as you just said. You mentioned uh, climate goals a few minutes ago. Um, does the Office of Public Advocate uh, get involved in any way or, or recognize um, that uh, the, the planning in the main climate action plan called Maine Won't Wait, is that is that part of your advocacy, if you will? Um, I'm, I was not involved in that particular effort. Um, we do get involved, uh, both the legislature and on, as I just mentioned, we're on the distributed generation uh, task force to try to uh, provide uh, better rules moving forward uh, for how distributed generation would work. Um, so we do get involved. Uh, I will say in, in many cases, our our message is we we believe that the, our climate policy goals can be met in a cost-effective way. And uh, there's often uh, a tendency among some to be willing to throw an unlimited money at the amount of money at the problem, which concerns us significantly. We, don't, we think that number one, that's going to undermine ultimately achieving the policy because people are going to um, run out of patience uh, if it if it causes rates to go up by too much, but it also obviously adversely affects uh, people on fixed and limited incomes, uh, working people, and that. Um, and so we prefer. Uh, and when we pay for these things, we frequently pay for them through electric rates. Electric rates, when you use them as a funding source for public policy, it's a regressive funding source. Mm -hmm. You're you're taxing. Uh, lower income and middle income people at a much higher rate uh, as a percentage of their income than you are uh, people who are of greater means. And therefore, it's a very poor mechanism for funding uh, public policy initiatives. Um, but we believe, I mean, heat pumps are a great example. I know you talked about that at the outset. Heat pumps are uh, one of the great things that people can do. It's very environmentally friendly. It, uh, 
you're you're re, you're reducing your carbon footprint substantially when you switch from oil to uh, heat pumps. Um, this, I think this this tax incentives, but more importantly, I, I you know uh, efficiency main trust is rebate programs, um, and they're trying to get as many of them out there as they can. That's uh, you know that that's a great thing we can do. That's that goes along with what I'm saying. How can we achieve our climate policy goals and not uh, pay an excessive amount um, to do so. And <laughs> that's been one of the philosophies uh, that uh, that has been uh, fundamental in this program is that there's you don't need to completely change your lifestyle and you don't need to break the bank. And that's individuals or society. And to me, there are ways to do these things that, that just make sense with yeah some some government incentives probably. Um, but again, I, I agree with you. We don't want to. We don't want to bankrupt people. We don't want to have an aggressive, regressive tax situation. Uh, and nor do we want to tell people that needed to need to change their lifestyle and set their thermostat at fifty-five degrees. So I'm, I, I so let, I mean, since you uh, since we come back to heat pumps, um, you I mean, I've got two. I mean, and that's part of the way that uh, that I reduced my energy consumption at home by 60% and I haven't paid any, uh, any um, uh, issues with, uh, with, with uh, comfort. Um, but occasionally you hear, in fact, one of the installers in the town where I live uh, was just telling me yesterday about people that complain about heat pumps. What do, what do you hear uh, there for people's general satisfaction and other specific complaints that you hear about heat pumps? Uh, I hear them mostly secondhand, so I can't really comment. Um, I will say that uh, the folks at Efficiency Main Trust believe that um, uh, uh, some of the issues that people have with their heat pumps has to do with not operating them in the most effective way. Um, and so it's very important to understand uh, how how your heat pump how your heat pump operates and um, what the strategy is for when to run it and when not to run it. Um, I think, I, and I am not an expert. I don't have a heat pump. If I had a a, a unit that was suitable for one, I would have one. Um, but I, I would just advise people to, if they're having problems with their heat pump, reach out to experts in the field and 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 talk to them about whether you may be. Uh, doing something, maybe operator error, as they like to say. Uh, I think part of the answer is going to the efficiency main website and looking for their approved contractors so that you don't get yes. advice and get the wrong size heat pump installed. And uh, I'm quite sure that that, uh, that efficiency main is still making the recommendation to set your uh, oil boiler, your gas boiler, whatever, your gas furnace, whatever, set the temperature a couple of degrees lower than the heat pump. Uh, temperature and so if by some chance the heat pump can't keep up, uh, then you can still be comfortable. But most likely, ninety-five percent of the time, the heat pump is going to do all the work for you. And, and one thing right. that I said, I've not heard anybody else say specifically, but one thing I say repeatedly on this program is, if you've got an oil old oil boiler, uh, you know that's uh, that you want to increase get for more efficient. What are you going to do? You're going to talk to your oil dealer, and they're going to sell you a new oil boiler. Well, that's crazy in a climate-threatened world. And so my, my advice has always been, if you've got an old inefficient oil boiler, so what? Put in a couple of heat pumps, 
uh, let the oil boiler run a week or two a year when it goes to, if it ever goes to minus 20 again in a climate world, uh, and don't replace the darn thing. Uh, and to me, that's, that's, I mean, that comes back to, you know, the right way to, to handle a heat pump uh, in, from my perspective and, and, and picking up on efficiency main recommendations. Yeah, no, I think that's all great advice. So uh, let me uh, let me pivot to uh, consumer-owned utilities, and uh, again, we we talked about this a little bit early on. And I'm not talking about consumer-owned utilities at the you know in a buyout scenario, but I mean there are what 15 or 16 small consumer-owned utilities around in the state. Um, do you know off the, off the top of your head, or can you comment in general about what their rates are? Did, did their rates all go up? I mean, the PUC doesn't uh, like their I rates. I can comment because um, I researched this recently as I was thinking about, we're thinking about what's what's wrong with the standard offer. Why, why are we having this problem? Now, a number of the uh, consumer-owned utilities simply participate in the Public Utilities Commission's solicitation, which means that they just get the same rate as CMP or Bangor Hydro or, excuse me, Versant Power, depending which service territory they're in. Um, beyond that, though, there are some in northern Maine, uh, Eastern Maine Electric Cooperative, notably, uh, which have this winter, their standard offer price is around six cents. Um, what they did is they don't let the PUC acquire the standard offer service for them. Consumer-owned utilities are allowed to do it themselves. Um, the South Fox Island financed their wind project, for instance. They're, they're using the wind project to, to be the major source for their uh, their uh, standard offer service. But EMAC, what they did when prices were low, they signed a long-term contract. Mm. Um, and so they employed a different strategy than the Public Utilities Commission did. The Public Utilities Commission goes out once a year, does an RFP, we want power for next year, starting on this date, ending on this date, they get bids and they go with the lowest bid. Emex said, wow, these prices are lower than we've seen them in a while. They signed a five-year contract. Um, and so there, there are potentially advantages to, you know, thinking about the strategy that we use for standard offer. Now, if, if, if you did that, by doing that, they've basically eliminated the potential of retail competition in their market because no, no, no competitor could match that price. But I, you know, uh, I, some, sometimes I have to remind people the point of, the point of competition is to achieve low prices, not, not to achieve competition for competition's sake. And of course, I'm sure EMAC conducted a solicitation to get that low price. So, I mean, it's still competition. It's just at a different point in supply chain. Let me remind everybody that uh, you're listening to Power for the People here on uh, Community Radio, WERU-FM. 99.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Andrew Landry, who is the Deputy Public Advocate in the Office of the Public Advocate, um, with their offices located in, in uh, Hollowell. Um, let, me, uh, let me come back a little bit to uh, the issue of ISO New England uh, rules and pricing. And this may not be true anymore because this is a, an anecdote from a number of years ago. I was on a, a field trip to uh, one of the the, uh, the wind farms when it was coming online, and there was a first wind representative there. It was the first wind project, um, and uh, the question was asked uh, of this the, their representative is when the wind blows, 
does you know does that sh- shut down an oil boiler or uh, an oil uh, generator or a gas generator? And the person literally said, and this was a busload of scientists there who all gasped when they said this, that uh, when the wind blew, uh, hydro shut down. And as far as they knew, the, the, the first wind person literally said this, as far as we know, our wind farms have not ever replaced a drop of oil. Is that still true? I, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, you know, I mean, that one of the, one of the reasons why the oil and gas industry was spent $100 million trying to defeat CMP's power line was because it was going to shut down their plants. <laughs> um, it, uh, uh, the, and we see uh, California's a good example, but we're seeing it in New England as well with solar. Uh, you have a massive ramp up of gas fired plants in the late afternoon when the sun starts setting. Uh, and as, as the solar units back down. So they are absolutely replacing oil and gas fired units. And um, I, I, I find that very difficult. Now, that may be physically in, let's say, uh, if it's their project in Arista County, it's quite possible if they have a, a hydro unit that can s- store some uh, water behind the dam, as it were, for a period of time to run later on, that could, that could happen. But uh, um, I don't think when we're talking about wind at the scale, we're talking about building, that it would do it would shut down very much hydro it would have to be shutting down gas and oil we're, we're uh, running short on time here but there are a couple of things that maybe we can uh, touch on here um and you just said a minute ago and, and this is something that, that i don't think the average person including me had any way to uh, evaluate you said that uh, the fossil fuel industry did spend millions of dollars to defeat the clean energy connect line uh, is, do we actually, we have actual evidence of that, that that was what happened? Yes. This is Nick Stara, um, who owns the oil unit in Yarmouth, and uh, Calpine, who owns the gas unit in uh, Westbrook, were two of the biggest funders of the uh, local main power coalition or whatever they were. Uh, so, so we had the unusual circumstance of the environmentalists and the oil and the fossil fuel people being on the same side, or at least... Uh, well, some environmentalists, is, is CLF and uh, Conservation Law Foundation, Acadia Center supported the line. <laughs> so. Right, right, but some some did not. Right, so right. Uh, all right, we, we're down to two minutes, and uh, and so uh, let me just ask you one one more thing relative to uh, sustainable grid and renewable energy. Um, what about pumped hydro? Do you does uh, have, do you have any opinion on that? Or and I mean, I've I've read things like well, I mean. In my classes, I talk about pumped hydro on islands in you know the, the Atlantic where where they're using pumped hydro very successfully. I read somewhere in a piece that uh, that pumped hydro was common in the United States. I'm not aware that it's used anywhere in the United States. What what do you know? There's a, there's a large pumped hydro facility in Massachusetts. Really? Um, but um, I don't. I'm not aware of any proposals to do more of it. I think you really need a an ideal. Uh, you know, topographical setup in order to be able to do it. And I, I just think those sites are few and far between. And if you wanted to manufacture it or construct it, I should say, it would be very, very expensive. Well, if you start from scratch, right? I mean, my idea is if you have solar or wind uh, at a, at a uh, uh, you know, at Wyman Dam in Bingham, 
Um, yeah. Can't we pump water back up into Wyman Lake when there's excess solar in the daytime to use that hydro at night? Um, that's possible. Um, you know, I I know there was somebody who had was looking at doing a project sort of like that in I think the Brunswick area, um, but I, I that never came to fruition. So I don't know if uh, you know uh, that's really. If it was possible or easy to do, I think we'd see a lot of it because it's a great idea. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the Brunswick, Brunswick area doesn't seem like it's uh, topographically appropriate for that sort of thing. Well, we are out of time. Uh, I appreciate uh, all the interesting ideas we've thrown around, and I hope that we have educated some of our listeners in terms of some of the complexity of, of the grid and and uh, to know a little bit more about the independent system operator in New England called ISO New England. Um, so you've been listening to uh, Power for the People here on uh, WERU, uh, and my guest today has been Andrew Landry, the Deputy um, Public Advocate for, in the Office of um, the Public Advocate. Um, and um, that's uh, that's it for this week. Uh, um, Power for the People uh, airs on the fourth Wednesday of the month, and so we will see you next month. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you.